Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to North Haven. It's good to see all of you. And for those that are watching via the live stream, thanks for joining us as well. My name is Pastor Adam. I'm the senior pastor here. And uh, it's just a joy to be able to be together. I love Christmas. Uh, this, is, this is my jam. This is my, my time of year. Um, and uh, I try to pass that on to my kids, too. And they've taken that in, in spades. So um, anyways, I, I'm just glad that we're together. Uh, last week, uh, you may have remember, if you were with us or if you're watching uh, via the live stream, that we talked about this endeavor that we're entering into this month uh, regarding talking Bibles. Uh, so if you're not familiar with what a talking Bible is, um, this is... This is the box that it comes in, and inside is this basically this plastic unit that holds within it an audio version of the entire Bible. Now, that, that sounds cool and all, and, and we, you might even be saying, well, I could actually you know, get on iTunes and, and listen to that without something tangible like this. Well, what makes this special is that Talking Bibles, this organization, it, it goes out and produces these Bibles in specific languages of people groups throughout the entire world that are in desperate need for God's Word. And the reason that they're in need is several reasons. One is because there's large areas of the world that are illiterate, that can't read their own language, and so being able to hear God's Word is their only option. And then many, many people throughout this world are impoverished and don't then have the resources to be able to uh, afford something like this. And there are people all throughout the world who have never heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They've never even heard, let alone read the Bible. You know, as I hear about all the stories that we tend to take for granted. I mean, you listened and read stories or, or heard stories maybe when you were in Sunday school with flannel graphs and all that kind of stuff. And there, there are stories that people in this world have never heard of. They've never heard of God working in the lives of people throughout this world. And so Talking Bibles is an organization that seeks to remedy these issues. And specifically, this Talking Bible and the ones that are piled up on this table behind me, uh, these Talking Bibles are in the Arceo-Roma language. The Arceo-Roma language, and that's a very specific people, the Oromo people in Ethiopia. And Talking Bibles, whenever they go into a people group, they do a three-process uh, uh, venture. And the first step is to equip one talking Bible for each pastor slash evangelist in that region. And then once they get that acclimated, then they begin to give talking Bibles to churches and other groups in those communities, and it just continues to spread from there. But the first step is what it is that we're venturing towards addressing. So as a church, as a church, we are looking to supply 163 of these talking Bibles in the RC. Oromo language for the Oromo people in Ethiopia, for these pastors and evangelists so that they can begin to create listening groups. That's what they do, 20 to 25 people that sit around and listen to the gospel of Jesus Christ and God's word. That means that 163 Bibles has the potential of reaching 3,000 to 5,000 people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's an amazing, an amazing number. And so we're, we're I'm asking you to consider giving towards 163 Bibles, talking Bibles, going to the Oromo people. 
And uh, we're going to do this endeavor today. We just started last week and then on the 20th, next Sunday, and then we're going to conclude it on the Christmas Eve. And the goal is to have supported, fund, funded 163 talking Bibles to go then to the Roman people. Concluding then in the spring where myself and Paul Lindbergh, uh, a representative with Talking Bibles, we will go together to this region and actually physically distribute these Bibles to the Oromo people on behalf of North Haven Church. It's just amazing. It's an incredible opportunity. And so $50 it costs to send one Talking Bible, and so to send 163, $8,150. So far, just one Sunday, we have received enough funds to send 33 talking Bibles so far. That's what's on this table. So we got a little ways to go, and I believe we, we can, and I believe we should get there. And so I'm asking you to prayerfully consider how God might be leading you to give towards this endeavor. Again, it might be $50, it might be 100 it might be 150 you might want to send 10 Bibles. And God needs to lead in that way, and I trust that he will do that. I just ask that you listen. And you can give uh, a number of different ways. You can either give um, with cash or check. If that's the method that you choose, there's an offering, offering envelope in your worship folder that you can uh, put that in and then drop that in the basket as you leave. So you could do that. Um, if you're watching via the live stream, you can mail that in to us. Or you can give digitally, super easy and very safe. You can do that through the website or through our app. And if you do that, you'll notice there's a specific designation that you can choose for this, for this uh, endeavor. So anyways, I'm, I'm expecting, hoping, prayerfully hoping that on the 24th, we're, we're ready to celebrate 163 Bibles ready to be uh, hand-delivered to the people, uh, the Oromo people in Ethiopia. So, all right, well... As I said, I love Christmas. I'm a Christmas nut. Are there any other Christmas nuts in the room? Come on, go ahead. Admit it. All right, yes, thank you. The few of you, all right, we stand strong. We stand proud. I love Christmas, and uh, I, I love Christmas movies. You know, we, there's so many different Christmas movies, and everybody has their favorite. It tends to be one of kind of 10 Christmas movies that that people choose from. And one of those movies might be the movie Polar Express. Now, the fact that these, that these characters in, in this movie are extremely creepy looking because of the digital effects, it's a fantastic story. And it's just, it, it captivated me and my wife when we first saw it back in, that, boy, I think that was like 2005, I think that came out. And, uh, and then my son, my son, he's 10 years old. He experienced this movie for the first time about six years ago. And then ever since then, he has been Polar Express addicted. He cannot get enough, enough of this movie. And it's not just Christmas. He makes us watch it all year round. This kid loves this, uh, this movie. We got him the, the bell from the movie as well, and we also got him the, the Polar Express train set. It's actually around our Christmas tree right now. Uh, so this movie has been played numerous, numerous times in our home. 
And if you're not familiar with the movie, if you haven't watched it, which it might be just a few of you, I want to just kind of get you up to speed on what this movie is about. So it's about this, this young boy, he's about maybe 10 years old, about the, the age of my son, who's like at this crossroads, it would seem. And, and the movie kind of frames it as if he's at this crossroads of whether to believe that Santa is real or not. And, uh, and, and then at one night, this train, the Polar Express, it comes up in front of his house on the street and picks him up. I mean, it's like totally glorifying kidnapping kids. It's weird. But anyways, again, if you can get past these things, these kids get into this train and it goes to the North Pole, eventually getting there through a series of adventures and they end up meeting Santa and all is well. But what strikes me about this movie, however, is, is something that is, is much it's, it's that much of what the young boy struggles with, as I perceive it, isn't so much whether Santa is real, uh, but rather it's this boy's struggle with a lack of peace. The movie frames it as the struggle comes from uh, this, this belief in Santa to, you know, is he real or is he not? But really, he's struggling with this inner turmoil that he's, that he's encountered. And the struggle, as I watch the movie now, seems to be a mirror image of what many of us, many of us are dealing with. The world right now, probably maybe more than ever, is longing for peace. Would you agree? We are longing for some semblance of peace. We desperately long for when all will be made right. There's a word that many of us are using. We mean peace when we say it, but we're using a different word. Anybody know what that word is? We're we're wanting things to be back to normal. What we're really saying is we are longing, we're wanting some semblance of peace again. Now, you see, peace is not an easy topic. It isn't an easy thing to talk about. We pretend like it is. We pretend like it's, like it's a, a um, what's those, uh, those, those big blanket covery things that you, Snuggies, what are those called? Snuggies, yeah. Everybody, anybody own a Snuggie? I want to see if anybody's brave enough to raise their hand. No? Okay, all right. Snuggies, peace, we think of it as a Snuggie. We think it like it's this, this warm, cozy reality uh, when peace actually is a very difficult thing to talk about. Because to, to assume that peace is the equivalent of some sort of snuggie in our lives would, would assume that peace is only achievable when things are going well. And that then becomes a very daunting reality for anybody who's experiencing life when things are going not well. To assume that peace is only achievable when you're on the mountaintop you are then, we are then essentially saying that anybody in the valley is incapable of achieving any sense of peace unless they're on the mountaintop. So one of the reasons why peace is such a difficult topic is that people often find peace, especially when we talk about peace, I'm saying peace in the Lord, peace, peace in God. I would venture to say, much like I would talk about love and hope, that these things are not 
are not constructs that God has a little bit of a, of a stake in. Rather, they are, they are of him. They are a result of only him. So love, true love, is God's love. True hope is God's hope, and true peace is, is God's peace. So one of the reasons that this is a difficult topic is that, is that people, when they find peace, when they often find peace, it's not on the mountaintop, but it's in the valley. It's when things are going not well. And during Christmas, we often speak about peace, and we correctly associate it with Jesus, right? Jesus and peace. They, they go together like, like peanut butter and chocolate, right? That's a correct relationship, Jesus and peace. But the way that we see peace often in the context of Jesus is this sweet little baby boy who's lying in a manger, goo-goo-ga-ga, and the light's shining down on him, and the shepherds, they don't smell like manure. You know, all that kind of stuff we tend to think in our minds when we associate Jesus and peace. But the way, the way that we need to see peace in the context of Jesus is not all rainbows and roses, Philip Jenkins, he explains that the years surrounding Jesus' birth were politically wrecked. He says this, quote, the birth occurred during or near a truly dreadful time in the history of what was already a troubled and turbulent land. That sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Things were not peaceful when Jesus was born. We often forget, and this is interesting, and we often forget, and men, men especially, what I'm talking about is men forget, women don't have any trouble forgetting this, that is that birth itself is a rather violent moment. And get an amen? <laughs> the birth of a baby, the birth of a baby is replete with pain, with, with discomfort, with worry, and then sometimes very scary possibilities. I remember when, when my wife was, was born, I've shared this story before, and she hasn't said not to, so anyways, I remember that when, when my first baby was born, my daughter, uh, we, were, <laughs> we were in the hospital, and, and uh, you, we took the classes, Right? Everybody takes the classes the first time, and then after that, they think, oh, we, we know what we're doing. We took the classes, and Sarah's in the midst of her most painful and, and uncomfortable moment. And she's looking, you know how this is, women, right? She's looking for every uh, way in which to relieve this. And so she thinks then back to an exercise that I had completely forgotten, because honestly, I wasn't really paying attention in those classes. She thinks back to this exercise that, that we did, and that's the only thing that comes to her mind. So she tells me to get on my hands and knees, and she then proceeds to sit on my back. You remember this? Yep. I remember I'm on my hands and knees, and for whatever reason, this is supposed to give her relief from her discomfort. And I'm on my hands and knees, and I'm thinking, how am I going to get through this? <laughs> I didn't say that out loud, mind you, but I thought it. But that was nothing. Nothing compared to what my wife was going through, what my wife was experiencing. However, even though there is much pain and discomfort and worry and then sometimes very scary possibilities in the midst of any, any baby's birth, many women, 
if not all women who have given birth, will testify that the immediate physical relief that a woman in labor feels after the baby has been born is profound compared to the pressure and pain that builds leading up to the birth. Hallelujah. We forget that all of this is true with Jesus as well. Think about this. Think, uh, here we've got, we got a young mom, Mary. She's not only a young mom, she's a teenager. I don't know if you knew that. She's a teenager and she's not married. Now that, that would produce stigmas today. But especially at this time, and especially in that culture. So she has surely been ostracized, not only her, but Joseph, her fiance, who I'm sure that the world, the people around them, thought it was Joseph who did that to Mary, right? So here you got a young mother and her fiance, they are all alone. And the birth itself was not in the most safe and sterile of environments. If you remember back in Luke 2, in Luke 2, it talks about Jesus' birth. If you, if you, everybody in this room, by the way, even if you haven't read Luke 2, you've heard it because you've watched Charlie Brown Christmas. And in Luke 2, what does Linus tell us? Linus says that there was no room in the inn, right? They didn't have any, any safe options, so they had to find whatever they could find, and then Jesus was essentially, after he was born, and of course that was a painful, of course that was an uncomfortable process, just as it is with any woman who's giving birth to Jesus, pre-epidural, mind you. But then they, they placed Jesus, baby Jesus, the Son of God, in what is essentially a feeding trough. The birth of Jesus was far from peaceful, far from it. But much like the relief that a mother experiences once their baby is born, the birth of Jesus brought about this profound peace, this profound relief, not only with Mary physically, but spiritually for all of humanity, a profound peace to a broken world and to a broken people. And through this moment, the moment of Jesus' birth, the Savior came to, came to rescue us from being enemies of God. That is essentially what we were. We were enemies of God. The fact that we were a sinful humanity, we could not possibly be in the same company of a sinless, perfect God there was this great divide that existed between us. And so we were essentially enemies of God. But even in the midst of that, Jesus rescued us from that existence so that we could learn to be at peace with all that surrounds us. Have you ever heard, have you ever heard someone say, that person is just a messianic figure? Have you ever heard a phrase like that? If you have ever been around talking about politics for any length of time, you may have heard somebody mention something to that effect. And when they, what they mean by this is that it's meant to describe an inflated view of a charismatic leader that people feel will save them from trouble. 
But the term Messiah is not a term from the world. Rather, it is a term that we see in God's Word, specifically describing Jesus, Jesus the Messiah, who was prophesied in the Old Testament to come. Millard Erickson, in his, in his book, The Concise Dictionary of Christian Theology, he says that, that uh, the Messiah means the appointed one, the leader appointed by God to carry out the special mission of redemption and liberation. And so when people, when people struggle or they're in dark situations in their lives, and we can all imagine that because we've all been there, they look for hope wherever they can find it. They look for peace wherever they can. When we see the economy in turmoil, or, or we see a world or community that's under stress, or we see a pandemic that's sweeping the world, we tend to look then to a leader who can make it better. We tend to look to a leader who can then save us and rescue us from the existence of our turmoil. However, the only one, the only one, and the message of Jesus the Messiah is that he is the only one who can save us. The only one who can rescue us from that turmoil and then lead us into peace is Jesus the Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 11, we see this beautiful description of the Messiah. Emmanuel, God with us. You may have heard that word. It's in Christmas carols. But the word Emmanuel means God with us. Again, when we were separated from God, a sinful humanity and a, and a sinless, perfect, holy God, we could not come to him. So God with us, Emmanuel, he had to come to us. And in chapter 11, Isaiah prophesies, this is in the Old Testament, he prophesies to the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. He says that the Messiah would be born of a virgin, would be a mighty and peaceful ruler, and would also have God's spirit in unlimited measure. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, we see this. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, and the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. See, infant Jesus, this baby Jesus lying in a manger, was destined to bring peace. In chapter 11, verses 6 through 8, it says, The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf, and the lion, and the yearling together. And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. When you read that at first glance, it sounds like a, just a really weird, twisted version of Fisher-Price. But that's not what, it, what, what Isaiah here is illuminating. In these verses, he's showing us that Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one who would bring us peace, will in fact do that to all of humanity. Because in these verses, we see a picture of opposites being together, living in peace. Wolves and sheep living together, lions eating with the ox, not lions eating the ox, etc. And so this, these verses, you know, I, I, 
it causes me, and I want to encourage you to think. Think about this. Think of somebody who is your opposite, somebody who is your enemy. Right now, you're immediately thinking of somebody. Now imagine hugging this person. Imagine loving them. Imagine caring for them. Imagine eating with them or being vulnerable with them. That's the type of change. That's the type of of radical, revolutionary change and restoration that Jesus the Messiah sought to bring. Isaiah provides this this continued picture, actually right away in verse 1 of chapter 11. You know the story of David and Goliath, and that's a pretty familiar story, even for those that aren't in the church. David and Goliath, the little shepherd boy who beat the giant, well, David eventually, this shepherd boy, eventually became king of Israel. And so then Isaiah here, then he points to how Jesus, the Messiah, is going to be a descendant in the line of King David. And so in verse 1, he says this, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, Jesse being David's father. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. So a shoot is a single green branch, in this, in this case, popping up from, from the stump of a bush or a tree. We've all seen something like that, so we can kind of picture it in our minds. And here, Isaiah, in, the, in this verse, is warning the Israelites. He's warning them of God's judgment. He's saying that the Hebrew people will be like a cleared-out field. You've seen a cleared-out field before where only stumps remain. And that from the stump, from the stump, Jesus the Messiah, from his, fruit, from his roots, fruit will come. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 5. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. I am the vine, you are the branches. You see, when a tree has good roots... No matter how many times the tree is cut down, it will always return. That is the hope of the Messiah. That is the hope and peace that comes from the Messiah. That although there is destruction, although there is dismay, although there is pain, although there is discomfort, although there is anger, although there is sorrow... Jesus will always prevail. That's why peace is often most fully realized in the valley, not on the mountaintop. Because it's in the valley that we are often most beautifully reminded that Jesus prevails. Despite the destruction, despite the pain, despite the discomfort, despite the anger, despite the sorrow... In March of 1863, there's a young man, 18 years old, his name was Charles Longfellow. He left his family's home in Massachusetts to, to join Abraham Lincoln's fight, the Union Army against the Confederacy. Charles was the oldest of, of a, a, a bunch of children, uh, brothers and sisters in his family. 
And also, uh, about two years earlier, Charles's mother died in a tragic, tragic accident. Her, her dress caught on fire. And while she was literally burning to death, her, his, Charles's father, Henry, woke from his nap and then, and then tried to extinguish the flames, was unsuccessful. So his wife perished from this. She died. And Henry suffered tragic, tragic burns and scars that were with him for the rest of his life. So Charles, he eventually enlists in the, in the, in the artillery, and he's later commissioned as second lieutenant. Here's a picture of him. And on the first, the first day of December, 1863, Charles's father, Henry, was eating at home when a telegram arrived stating that his, his son, Charles, was, was seriously, seriously injured. And so, of course, as any father would, he, he and um, Charles's younger brother, Ernest, immediately set up for Washington, D.C., where they would eventually meet up with Charles a few days later. And the reality is that Charles's injuries were, were quite serious. They were so serious, in fact, that, that uh, they, were, they were thinking that uh, paralysis was, was a, a definite result and that it would take uh, such a long season of healing and recovery. And so that Friday in 1863, December 25th, Charles's father, Henry Longfellow, wrote a poem. He wrote a poem trying to capture that the, the tension that was in his own heart and also the struggles throughout the world that he observed around him. And as he sat there, as he sat there actually uh, penning this poem, he heard the Christmas bells. It was Christmas Day, mind you, and the Christmas bells there in Cambridge were ringing. And he also heard the faint, distant sound of peace on earth being sung. And the tension of those two beautiful things then, then resonating alongside of the despair, the discomfort, the anguish, the pain, and the sorrow of the world around him. As if those things were mocking the bells and the song. So he wrote this poem. And then about 10 years later, it was put to music, and it's sure it's a, a song that you've heard before. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. And wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. For the song. And though how as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day. A voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, Then from each black accursed mouth the cannon thundered in the south and with the sound the carols drowned of peace on earth 
goodwill to men. It was as if an earthquake rent the hearthstones of a continent and made forlorn the households born of peace on earth. Goodwill to men. And then this verse, which I think resonates in many of our hearts today. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then peal the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. You and I, because of Jesus the Messiah, we have a confident peace in the midst of despair. Jesus came, he lived, he died, he rose from the dead, and he's living today. Because of that peace, peace shall always prevail. Just as Henry Longfellow wrote of how the bells were drowned out by the destruction, the dismay, the pain, the confusion, the anger, and the sorrow of his time, we too can experience those bells being drowned out. There's this beautiful scene in the Polar Express where if you look at it at first glance, you could, I think, miss what it can really say. But the boy is finally in the, the North Pole, and Santa has revealed himself, and everybody's just going crazy. And in the midst of that confusion, he wants to see Santa, and then he looks and he notices something strange. Check this out.
the world, the enemy, wants nothing more than for the bells and the song to be drowned out, to be drowned out by the pain, the despair, the anger, the resentment, the troubles. The enemy wants so much for us to hold up that bell and to bring it past our ear and not be able to hear the bell. But do you believe in the peace that only Jesus can provide? Will you tune your ear to hear the bells chime? And will you listen to the song and agree peace on earth? May we not cease hearing the bells of peace. The bells of peace afforded to us through Jesus the Messiah. May the bells of the Savior ring loud and deep in your life this Christmas and for the days and months and years to come. Let's pray. Lord, I, I, uh, I don't want to just go through the motions. Lord, I, I don't want for myself or anybody in this room or for those watching, I don't want us to wake up on the 26th and, 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 and once again regret that we didn't seize hold of this opportunity in all of its glory, in all of its majesty. Christmas is, is, is not just a, a time of, of uh, family and, and, and friends and carols and gifts and Christmas movies and cookies. It is so much more. It is a reminder it isn't the only time for this, but a reminder for us to live our, our lives with our eyes focused on you. Receiving freely the gift of your peace. We do not have to, to be on the other side of this pandemic. We don't have to be on the other side of a failed marriage. We don't have to be on the other side of an addiction. We don't have to be on the other side of financial turmoil to have peace. Your peace is right there. And all we have to do is reach out and grab it. So I pray that that would be our desire, our action this Christmas season. We love you. I love you. Lead us in your way everlasting, we pray in your name. Amen.